I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Matthew as we resume our study in our series of the King, the Kingdom and Kingdom Living. And we haven't been here in a little while because we have been celebrating Palm Sunday and the Resurrection Sunday. And then, and then I was um, away from this pulpit um, this past Sunday. And so we might have to wind back the gears a little bit to remind you of where we're at. So I would invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew 24 and we'll begin in verse number one and we'll go down, read down through verse 28. But the text this morning that we'll be in will be verses 15 through 28. Looking down at Matthew 24, one, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then... They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, when that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect. Those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, as we venture into time to come, as we venture into time that is past, but as we venture into your word, your timeless word, May it be everything we need to hear this morning. I don't know the hearts of people here today, but if they're anything like mine, we desperately need the water of the word to come into parched areas where we have become faithless and unfaithful and unbelieving. Oh, Father, would you come in your time here this morning through your word and meet with us and show us Christ, draw us close to his heart and encourage us with truth, challenge us in the ways in which We have yet to conform unto His image. And we pray this in His name. Amen. 
The title of the message this morning is Christ the True Word. Christ the True Word. As we can look at this passage, we find very much a prophetic passage. It is a passage that has been a little bit of a challenge, um, a little bit of a puzzle for many a teacher and preacher and pastor to preach and to teach faithfully. I admit to you that uh, through much study, even through years of visiting this passage, I have to submit to you this message this morning, knowing that there is much more that I would like to say, but that time would, uh, that t- time would limit us. I encourage you with every part of, of pastoral uh, wisdom to go into the Word of God for yourself, to search out the Scriptures and to search out Christ in them, to go beyond what you learn and what you hear from this pulpit and to to be a teacher of yourself, even giving yourself to the Holy Spirit's illumination of of the passage. But know this, that this morning we are only just filling up an ice glass, a water glass, with ice from the tip of the iceberg in any passage we're in in Scripture, but even this passage too. And this passage is the essential... uh, it seems this this part of uh, prophecy that really catches our attention, and it is uh, found in verse number fifteen, the abomination of desolation. It sits there in the passage, and it just shakes us and rattles us, and it seems so sensational. It seems so incredible that something like this would ever take place. I'd like to give us a little bit of a historical reference on this also share in a little bit of an immediate reference on this as it relates to the disciples, then also give a prophetic uh, view of this. And I'm going to read a little bit of a history borrowed from another source. um, But in 168 BC, that is 168 years before we believe Christ was walking on this earth, there was a Greek king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. All right, so he is... Really great name here, Epiphanes, invaded Jerusalem and he captured the city. He marched into the Jewish temple and erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense. Okay, not on the Ark of the Covenant, but on the altar of incense. This provoked a revolt in Judea, the area around Jerusalem, as the Jews fought to remove this sacrilege from the temple. And under the leadership of a Jewish man named Maccabees, the Jews drove out Antiochus and his army and they gained control of their land for about a hundred years before Christ until Pompeii. And you might, that, you might not have heard that in a long time, maybe since like 10th grade or something, but Pompeii was a Roman ruler and he was a Roman general and he captured Jerusalem and Judea and brought it underneath the submission, brought it underneath the protection, really divine protection of the Roman Empire. So it is the Roman Empire that is reigning in Jerusalem from roughly um, 70 B.C. Uh, to to through Christ's time. OK, so that's that's how we end up with with Israel underneath Roman rule. Israel was never really ever able to regain its own sovereignty from the time of its exile to Babylon. As you remember, when they returned under, under Nehemiah, the, the holy man uh, Zerubbabel, uh, underneath um, Ezra and, and those men, it never really uh, put together its own sovereignty. So it's always slave to almost like these 100-year cycles or 200-year cycles of, of empires just overtaking them. So that's why, by the way, it just seems so significant in 1948 when Israel was uh, seen as a sovereign nation. Ever since Babylonian captivity, they had not had sovereignty. Okay, so that's why it just seems to stand out in the 1900s. Do you remember the 1900s, by the way? I, we were, Jennifer and I were joking the other day, just talking to young people these days, and I think someone asked her, a child at the school where she was teaching, said, what was it like in the 1900s? <laughs> So we have that 168 B.C. that happened and it was an abomination where the temple 
was desolate, where once it had been a place of holiness and reverence and a central place to the worship of God, now it had become an abomination. But later on, uh, almost um, 200 years later, another event would take place. It would take place roughly 30 years after, 35 years after Matthew 24. Okay? And roughly um, 10 to 15 years after Matthew writes his book. And it is um, the destruction of the temple again. So when Pompey came in and uh, set up the Roman Empire over Jerusalem, uh, different kings helped rebuild, included, including Herod, the, uh, the temple for Israel. And it was called Herod's temple, not like Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. Now it's called Herod's temple. And it is just, they said you could see it from miles away glistening on the mount there in Jerusalem. Uh, it, would, it just seems like you might even have to cover your eyes because it was just overladen with so much gold. And the reason why the Roman Empire would allow this temple to be rebuilt is because of the syncretistic um, or even the, the pantheistic uh, religion of the Roman Empire. That is, if we can get all the religions you know, into our empire, and yes, there will be Caesar worship, but maybe we can get the blessing of all of these gods, then we will be the mightiest empire that there could be on this planet. And so, sure, build back the Jewish temple. Let's bring back... Israel's God, too, along with Baal and all these other gods, especially of the Greek gods that Roman, the, the Roman rule didn't seem to be able to divide itself away from. So in AD 70, reading again from some history, um, there was some, some tumult. I'm sorry, and it began back in AD 66. In AD 66, there was a direct revolt by the Jews against the Roman authority. So Jews, there was a, a band of Jews, zealots, who were eager finally to cast off the chains of the Roman Empire, finally. And Judas Iscariot was one of them, by the way. He was a zealot. He thought Jesus was going to be the ultimate patriot and bring back Israel, back to her glory uh, in, a, in an earthly way. And so in 66 A.D., there was a direct revolt by Jews against the Roman authority. And Titus, with his Roman legions, arrived at the outermost northern wall of Jerusalem um, at the Passover at the Passover time in 70 AD. They had, they had sieged the city for about three and a half years, by the way. Outside of the walls of Jerusalem, Rome had, had, was trying to crush a revolt and was, was patient for three and a half years. But finally, on Passover in AD 70, Titus marches into the walls and uh, with a number of about 30,000 soldiers and uh, begins to invade even the temple uh, there in Jerusalem. And they overthrew and, and really decimated the temple. Uh, as was prophesied by Christ in previous chapter in Matthew 23, and I think it's verse 37 to 38, he said, not one stone will be laying upon another stone. Um, this is what happened in AD 70. The temple was totally destroyed and today remains destroyed. It's not even there. We can't even use the word it remains. It's not there. And so that's, what, that's where the temple went. So we have... 168 BC, we have 70 AD as um, opportunities to see an abomination. So when Titus comes in, he sets up banners and he sets up um, all sorts of regalia that Caesar worship uh, on the Temple Mount in the place of the temple. And so, therefore, he commits an abomination. But also in Daniel chapter 12, and I want to invite you to turn with me in Daniel chapter 12. And read along since Jesus says that we should understand what Daniel is 
talking about in Matthew 24, Jesus says, spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So let's go where Jesus was going. Jesus didn't seem to be going back to 168 B.C. And so where is Jesus going with this in his reference to Daniel? So Daniel 12, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. Someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed unto the end of the time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end. Coming back to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And we have the reference of the Maccabean revolt and the abomination that took place in the temple of 168. We know that just in a couple decades, there's going to be another Uh, what appears to be an abomination of desolation in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. Jesus here is referencing us back to something of Daniel's reference. So how do we, what do we make of all this? Do we take all of this in and, and how do we handle this text this morning? I'd like for us to walk through this passage and take into account the counsel and the guidance that Christ has for the disciples as they live their lives in the here and now. And so this morning we're going to be looking at three truths. And I want us to look at these three truths and see what Jesus is saying about who he is. The question I'd like for you to ask this morning about yourself is, are you living in the light of Jesus' answers to the disciples this morning? Are you living in light of what is being shared with you this morning? This is more than prophecy and it's more than history. It is the very word of Christ. And Matthew is inspired by Christ to canonize, that is to to record this and deliver it to you and I. This is more than history and it's more than prophecy. Do you see what Jesus is saying this morning to you? Number one, I believe that what we see in this passage, first of all, is that we we learn that every trial we face is in accordance with, with the word of God. Now, remember, and maybe you don't remember, but several weeks ago we were in the first 14 verses of Matthew 24, and there were two key truths that we walked away with. And number one, let Jesus correct your thinking. Let Jesus correct your thinking. Let him be the one who deciphers. Let him be the one who transmits. Let him be the one who transforms your thinking. And number two, let Jesus prepare you for suffering before triumph. Remember, this is not the time for us to triumph. This is not the time for us to glory and to boast and to be exalted. We suffer before triumph. Let Jesus prepare you for suffering before triumph. So then the third truth we learn from this whole passage is this, that every trial we face is in accordance with the Word of God, with the Word of Christ. We endure both trivial and 
tribulations. Think about through your life every day. You and I are enduring trivial things, little things, the stubbing of the toe and inconveniences and discomforts and small things that seem to just plague us, remind us that we live in a fallen world and every part of everything is just broken. But we also live in a world and our lives are lived out in the middle of tribulations. It's very difficult testings, very difficult trials. And what we need to understand, what we need to reckon as believers in, in God's sovereignty over our lives and in God's care for us is that God cares for us even in the trials that we have, even in bringing us into the trials that we have, because our trials have both their beginning and their ending in the ordaining of God. In this passage, we are struck with the reality, and that is that as something terrible is going to take place in this earth, God is the one who has ordained its beginning and he ordains its end. It has a first page and praise be to him for his mercy. It has a final page. So in the great tribulation, so in the time to come of great calamity that befalls on this earth, there is an ordination of beginning and ending. And by the word of God, the trials that we befall this earth and in the microwave, that is the macroway, in the microwave, so too the tribulations that you and I endure and that we may endure for our entire life have their ordaining, the beginning and the ending by the sovereignty of God. God's the one who begins them or ordains their beginning and God is the one who ordains their ending. They will not last longer than that which He has ordained. And that might even mean that they last all the way to the end of our life. But they will not last beyond our life. And praise be to Him. This is some of our joy knowing that this life is the worst it gets. This is, this for us, this is all the hell we will ever experience. And heaven awaits. For unbelievers, this is heaven. And hell awaits. And by the way, if you're listening to this message this morning, that is so true. Heed to the truth of that statement. That for those who have placed their, their faith in Jesus Christ, this is the worst that will ever be for us. Even if we endure persecution, even if we're executed, even when we experience the most excruciating losses, this is the worst we will ever experience and heaven awaits. But for you who do not know Jesus Christ, this even if, even if you are suffering excruciating pain and losses, even if your grief has carried you into the deep recesses of darkness and evil and you have been even victim to wickedness, this is still as good as it gets until you place your faith in Jesus Christ. This is still the best it will ever be. These tribulations in our lives as believers are ordained. They have their ordained beginning and they have their ordained ending. And it is by His mercy that they are shortened. Think with me, for example, in the first... In the first uh, signal to us that sorrow and death won't reign for those who are hidden in God's mercy. That begins in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, okay, and in the middle of the garden is the tree of life that they're able to eat and, and have life from. That's why it's called the tree of life. It keeps them alive, so to speak. But in reality, it does. But as God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, they take no fruit, they take no seed from the tree of life and plant it outside the garden. It is this tree of life that seems to be singular and it's in the midst of the garden. And the garden, once Adam and Eve have failed and have fallen into death and deadliness, they are no longer given access to the garden. And the garden is a wonderful place to be. And wonderful memories have taken place there. But they're no longer able to access the garden. Why? Because of God's meanness? Because He's unkind or unwilling to be generous? 
No, because of His incredible mercy. Because if Adam and Eve go in, now defiled by sin, now with death in their bodies, now with death everywhere, there's a tree of life where they could take the fruit and live, and live forever in death. It's like the sentiment of us as believers, do you really want to live in this fallen world forever? No, you do not. So too, God in His mercy would prevent Adam and Eve from living in this fallen world forever by placing an angel at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And by His mercy, He cuts short His judgment. It's a signal. But, but, but notice, it's the very first signal that, that signals to us, heralds to us, those who have placed their faith and trust in God. His mercy cuts short His mercy cuts short tribulation. His mercy brings it short. You see, trials, hardships, don't deny the sovereignty of God. They prove the sovereignty of God. If God would not cut short our trials and even our life and our hardship of life, it would last forever. And if God does not cut short the tribulation in time to come, it will last. But trials instead, they don't, de- they don't deny the sovereignty of God. Instead, trials prove the truthfulness of God. Trials prove the truthfulness of God. God said there would be trials. And He gives truth to navigate through the trials. And He, he gives truth to oppose the deceitfulness of trials. You see, one of the greatest parts of our suffering is our suffering in our suffering. It's our thinking, it's our twisted way in which all of a sudden we feel that we've been abandoned by God. All of a sudden we begin to feel sorry for ourselves and and have a low view of God's grace and mercy. And we're plagued by so much lies and so much deceitfulness. And we look upon the externals and we let the externals teach us what truth is rather than look to Christ who is true. But God gives us truth in the midst of trials to oppose the deceitfulness of trials. Why has God given you from cover to cover in His Word assurances of His abiding presence? Why has He given you assurances of His abiding mercies and His tender compassions? Why do we have to have books upon books upon books in this Bible assuring us of God's kindness and care? It's because when we fall into hardships, we doubt everything good about God. But God gives us truth so that in the middle of tribulation, in the middle of trials, we can defeat perhaps one of the greatest agonies of our lives, and that is the doubts and the discouragement and the deceitfulness of our hearts. So He gives us truth to oppose the deceitfulness of trials. We shouldn't be discouraged at all when we face trials. James 1, James speaks about that. The second truth we see in this passage is not only does God ordain the beginning and the end by His mercies, but secondly, that the Word of God is more trustworthy than our circumstances. The Word of God is more trustworthy than our circumstances. You see, the Jews had come to believe that Jerusalem would never be destroyed. That's what was on the mind in the first couple of verses in Matthew 24. As they were leaving Jerusalem, uh, the disciples of Jesus, they turned around and they looked at that temple and they just thought, is there anything more beautiful? And it was, again, in their thinking, it was like looking at the flag. It was like looking at the epitome of what it was to be a Jew. That temple, as long as it stood... It was a testimony to them of God's presence, of His protection, and His provision. And they were Jews, and and they were God's people, and they were very different from everybody else. They had a temple of the living God. And as they looked around, as they turned around, walking out of Jerusalem with, with Jesus, Matthew 24, towards the Mount of Olives, they looked at that and just said, Jesus, have you ever seen something so beautiful? That's kind of what was on their, on their mind. On their, and it's kind of what they're saying. And they'd come to believe that as long as as, as that was there, they would have God's blessings. Like the disciples thought that the temple would always stand and so Jerusalem would be a place of perpetuity. When faithful Jews 
the Jewish Christians, like in Matthew 24, in time to come, heed the warning of Christ and flee the place of destruction. They're being preserved by the merciful Lord and perpetuate the gospel message. You see, in chapter 24, we see the admonition. Look at verse 17, that the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And it is the place of luxury. It's a place of comfort. It's the place to be at the end of the day uh, on the housetop. That's your living room. Don't don't even just go downstairs. Like perhaps even the picture could even be run from housetop to housetop. Just get out of there as fast as you can when when you see the abomination of desolation. Don't even go down to take what's valuable in your house. And if you're in the field and you've taken off your your coat and your cloak in order to do some hard work, don't even try to get that. You just make make a beeline out of the field. And Christ says, for pity to the women who are pregnant, it'll be very difficult for them and nursing infants in those days. And and pray that it might not be in the winter when the streams uh, and and the river Jordan would actually overflow in winter. It would be very difficult to pass over Jordan or to even come around Jordan into a place of refuge. And on Sabbath, there's several explanations for Sabbath. One of them could be that in this time, in time to come, when God's faithful people are running away from the great deceiver for their life out of Jerusalem because temple, the temple has just been uh, made desolate, that they will be now pronounced, now the believers of Christ will fear for their life. They could be stoned on their way out of Jerusalem. It will be hard for them to get out of Jerusalem if it's a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. And so, so when, when these people, when these believing Jews heed the warning of Christ and flee the place of destruction, they are being preserved by our merciful Lord and we find, in order to perpetuate the gospel message, by the way, in AD 70, when uh, Titus came in and overthrew the revolt happening in Jerusalem, what, what happened was the exact opposite of this, at least in the population sense. That is, that is Jews came from the countryside and joined the revolt and fought against ta- uh, Titus in this. And uh, tens of thousands of, uh, of, of men took up arms in in abundance over the population of Jerusalem. So instead of fleeing Jerusalem, the Jews came to Jerusalem. If they had heeded, by the way, if, this, if they had even heeded this instruction, which they had in their hands, which they could have had in their hands, uh, they would have been spared. But instead they came from the countryside and died and their lives were shed. But instead, Jesus says, those who are believing in the time when the great deceiver comes, run for your life. And there's a merciful perpetuation that is given through the gospel. When these would run, when the pregnant woman runs, when the farmer runs, when the person lounging on his rooftop runs, they're showing they trust the word of God more than the pillars of their religion. They're trusting the word of God more than the pillars of their religion because it would be every instinct within a faithful Jew to run to the temple and to, and to conquer it again. This won't happen again. We're not going to have another abomination desolation. Every part of them, every fiber. But when they, when they run, when they flee, they'll show that they're trusting the Word of God more than the pillars of their religion. And do you know that the Word of God is more trustworthy than your circumstances? And I know that all of us are having lessons right now on interpreting our circumstances both globally and then also personally. We're always interpreting our circumstances. What is befalling me? What, what should I do? What am I doing? What has happened to me? What's going on? And we're always interpreting our circumstances. But God is more, the Word of God is more trustworthy than our circumstances. And when they run, they're demonstrating that they will obey despite what they see. When they run, they demonstrate that they are willing to obey despite every instinct inside of them that says to fight and not flee. And there is wisdom, we see, in Christ's counsel to avoid conflict. You see, God has not called everyone to be a martyr or at least to be a martyr at the first sign of opposition. We're not to court conflict. 
And this runs counterintuitive to what we think sometimes is, is fearless Christianity. In the early church, for example, listen, in the early church, for example, there was an eagerness to die for Christ. And we've read the stories, we've heard the stories. And pick up a book and read it sometime, put on your short, short list reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's an eagerness to die for Christ. And among some in the early church, it was thought, it was, it was an ultimate eagerness. And some actually ran for the burning stake so that they could be said that they were, they died a martyr. Some said it would be the ultimate expression of their devotion to Christ if they would die at the stake. We can't look back and, and doubt their motives and, and deconstruct all of their motives. But the fact is that all of us who could hardly hold a candle to that passion, it's possible that we can identify some sort of the thinking of greatness in our midst have you ever thought have you ever thought that if something were to happen to you, for example, a terrorist or someone was to come to you and, and ask for you to vouch for your faith, to give evidence, to give profession of your faith in Christ, have you ever thought that you would you would die for Christ if you're called to do that? Probably all of us who are sincere in worship have thought about that. But the reality is that long obedience and living for Christ is also difficult. The reality is that long obedience and living for Christ today is also very difficult. And we know it. Sometimes, may I suggest, it's because of the hardship of faithfulness and waiting that causes us to think it's something noble to want our lives cut short for Christ. Sometimes we entertain that thought of, you know, if someone was to come and say, are you a Christian? We'd say yes. And we'd end it. We'd be like, glory, hallelujah, I am out of here no longer. And we, we entertain that thought because we know the hardship of faithfulness and waiting is very, very difficult to endure. And so we think, I'll die for Christ. But it's the long obedience and the living for Christ in the now might be just as hard. It's hard to put scale to this, but it is very difficult for us to think about. Sometimes Christ has other plans for us. Why is he allowing you to endure? Maybe you're wondering this. Maybe you're wondering, why am I still alive? Why, why can't I just go? Why can't this all be over? I'm so weary of this life. I'm weary of this body. I love Jesus Christ. I want to be with him. It's because Christ has other plans. And at times, like in our text in Matthew 24, he wants to preserve his witnesses. Run from the housetop to the mountains, not to the temple. I want you to live another day. And for now, Jesus is preserving you and I. And it's always, his preservation of his people is always for a demonstration of his compassion that he does so. But more, more importantly, it's because Christ is filling up his fame in this world. And that he has left you, that he not left like desolate left, but that he has appointed you to remain in this world as one who has fleed the housetops and fleed the field, fled the field. He has appointed you to continue to fill up his fame so that those who are not fleeing will be called unto him. God's people are preserved because there is another day they will die, but he still has a mission for them until he finishes it. We should be ready for persecution for righteousness' sake, but that isn't always the way in which it ends. But thirdly, not only does the word of God more trustworthy than our circumstances, but the word of God will take you into the presence of God. I love how this reminds us of Exodus and God's command to Moses after the Passover 
that the people were to have cloak in hand because delivery was imminent. This has a little bit of that ripple, a little bit of that echo in it. Have cloak in hand because delivery is imminent. You see, refuge refuge for these people in this text and for us isn't found in a place. Refuge isn't found in a building or a religion. Refuge is found in humble obedience to the Word of God. The Word of God will always take you into the presence of God. For these Jews, the Word of God was taking them away from the temple. That didn't seem very religious. That didn't seem very devoted. That didn't seem like that adds up to faithful Jewishness is to run away from the temple. Well, the fact is that for the Jews, the Word of God was taking them away from from the temple and to God. It was certainly a counterintuitive place. No matter where they are, they had better obey for their life. Listen, obedience is really always a life and death decision. There's more at stake in our physical... There's more at stake in our obedience than our physical body. You remember when um, when King Saul took upon him a priestly function and offered a sacrifice to God, not waiting for the prophet Samuel. Samuel had been appointed to represent God before to represent the people before God through offering sacrifices, but King Saul decided to wear not only the crown of the king but also the priestly position and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And Samuel sternly warned him and said, As God so great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, I tell you, he has more delight in obedience. You know, I think this is so typical of of our performance-driven hearts, and that is that we want to do something to show and to prove God our loyalty, our devotion. We want to to build an altar. We want to do something great. But God just says, listen, all I've ever expected from you is what I say you do. When I say flee, you run. When I say stand, you stay. Just obey. The question is, Several questions come out of this. And that is, what have you been hesitating to obey God in? Whether in a field, on a rooftop, or pregnant, whether it is winter when the rivers are swollen, or on a Sabbath when believing Jews would be easy targets for law-abiding Jews to stone and assault, sometimes Christ says to stay. And sometimes he says to go. But it's both about the same mission. The disciples were not to flee yet, but there would be a time to go and time to come. And this must be something that we resolve in our hearts. When the word of God comes to us and commands us to obey, we obey. Even when it seems counterintuitive. And even when it seems so simple, we think, I've already got that base covered. So both in the extreme of, I can't imagine that ever happening, and the, well, that always happens, I can rely upon my own flesh to do that. In both extremes and in the middle, God says, obey. And the Word of God is to be obeyed. And in obedience to God, in obeying God, in the Word of God is the presence of God. Why were they to flee from the rooftop in the field? Because God had left the temple. That's what the abomination of desolation means. The abomination that causes desolation. What's desolation mean? I talked about this, about this with several people this week. And it's interesting. I even saw, just happened to saw just a short part of a nature program on TV yesterday. And this man was walking through, and I thought, this is the illustration. He was walking through this place where... Uh, there was bushes and there was grass and there was, there was the dirt, but everything about this place spoke death in the, in the light of what was once life. 
it had once had life, but now had death. It wasn't like a desert full of sand dunes where there wasn't anything ever. It was a departure of life. The abomination that causes the departure or the desolation or the deadliness or the emptiness or the vacation, vacating of God. God wasn't there. So where was he telling his people to go? To go where he is. Where he is is where you obey. When you obey God, you are with God. God wasn't in the temple. It was desolate. Once he had been there. And now he had not. And by the way, it seems that as Bible-believing Christians, we look back at the temple and we say, with great mercy, God destroyed the temple. So that no longer would his people think of it as a place of his presence. So that he would make them jealous. That he would cause them to look upward unto him in faith. Because he had come as the new temple. He had templed with them. You see, where God is not worshipped, hearts are desolate. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your heart is, is desolate. The picture of your heart, the true reality of the picture of your heart is that which is death. That which is dead. That which is empty. Where God is not worshipped, hearts are desolate. Our salvation comes from the Lord. As Matthew wrote this to a Jewish audience and Jesus shared it with a Jewish audience, so God was marking the end of the era of the temple by His mercy. Jesus had come, yet Jerusalem had hardened her heart even further. And God takes sin seriously and He always takes it more seriously than we do. And God's judgment for sin is to be taken seriously, but God is merciful towards His people. And the, as, as the text goes on, uh, verse um, 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, we have all these claims of these Christ saying, saying, follow me, follow me. What is this? It's many who are calling unto these people who have fled, who have obeyed the voice of God, who obeyed the word of God to their salvation, to their continuing life, to their deliverance from the oppression and they will, they will be, try to be lured out of their hiding places. Christians believing those who are obeying the word of God will be tried to be lured out by false Christs. And there will be many false Christs. And by the way, there are many false Christs in our world today. Wooing, wooing Christians, those who are saying they're Christians, away from Jesus Christ. But Jesus says it is not possible for those who are truly Christ to be led away. He says in verse number 24, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. We have so many words of security there. So as to lead astray, if possible, it's not a possibility because the elect is a secure word. It's a ransomed people a people who have been ordained and appointed unto eternal life. But the deception will be so strong that some, some listen, in that day and in today, who aren't listening, who aren't hearing the voice of Christ, are being led astray. They're not listening to the voice of Christ. They're not listening to the Word of God. And they're being led astray, but they don't even know it. They think they're following Christ. Because the one, or the people, or the system, or the religion, or the church they're following says Christ on the sign. And the people are praying to Christ in their words. And they don't even know it. John 10, 27, 29. 
Jesus promises that those who are in God, in His hand, will never be cast out. You see, those who have been redeemed, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, won't listen to false claims of other Christs. The reason why so many will hear and follow the false Christ is because they're looking for someone better than Christ. That's why. Why do we have an encyclopedia of religions in this world? Why is every corner in our community have a different type of church and some don't even know the gospel? Why? Because everybody's looking for someone better than Jesus Christ. If you're looking for someone better than Christ, then look number look at verse number twenty eight. Wherever the corpse is, though the vultures will gather. If you're looking for someone better than Christ, you're like a dead corpse under the blazing sun with vultures overhead. If you do not hear and heed the voice of Christ, you are dead and judgment is upon you. There is no Christ better than the one named Jesus. There's no Christ better than Jesus the Christ. In closing, the hymn that we haven't sung in a while, but you know it from time past, called, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? The second verse of this song sounds like this. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain. Supported by what? You know it. By thy word. That's the only way. That's the only way. Christian, you have to live by the Word. The very Word of God. The Word of God will take you into the presence of God. The Word of God has ordained your trial from its beginning to its merciful ending. And the Word of God is more trustworthy than all of your circumstances, even when you can see them. Even when it seems you should run to the temple. Even when it seems this is what you should do, go to the Word of God. Let's pray.